Well, this morning we'll be continuing our study of Mark. So we'll be in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 and 50. If you have a Bible in front of you um, from the, the seats, it's page 845. Let me pray before we get started. God, again, we just pause and we just ask that this morning you would use your word. Lord, as we talk about um, a serious issue, as we talk about sin, God, we just pray that your spirit would convict and reveal where there's sin in our life. We pray that our eyes would not be overwhelmed and crushed with guilt, but that we would look to Jesus and remember that our forgiveness and freedom is found in him. God, use your word. Speak to all of us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our world is full of warnings, probably too many warnings because people are worried about getting sued today. We even warn about things that are common sense, like don't marinate your chicken in NyQuil, 2022. Well, here are a few more warnings that weren't necessary, but you see these on labels and products. So the first one is a child stroller that warns remove child before folding. Important information. Second one, this was a truck with Chipotle on the side that warns drivers do not carry burritos. You've thought of that. You've seen Pepsi, you're like, if this wrecks and I'm behind the Pepsi truck, maybe I get free Pepsi. It's not the truth. Number three, a mechanical drill that warns this. This product is not intended for use as a dental drill. That's a little scary. And then last one, so this is an iron that warns do not use while wearing shirt. That one seems less obvious to me, so I've given up ironing because that was always confusing. So while these warnings should remind us that humans are never above doing stupid things, they actually cause us to then ignore many warnings. I think the prevalence of all these warnings in our society is one reason we tune them out. But I also think part of why we ignore warnings, more serious warnings than these, is because of our own pride or our assumption that they don't apply to us. We think warnings might be for other people, but they're not for me. Think about how many people ignore warnings related to proper dosage of drugs or potential side effects of drugs or approaching dangerous animals, excessive speeding, warnings about sports gambling and getting in too deep or warnings about stretching now that you're middle age, trying to listen to that one, and so on and so on. We have all these warnings, but most people ignore them. What happens is most of us are extremely skilled and experienced when it comes to justifying ourselves and telling ourselves why we are the exception. We say, I'm smart enough to know not to get in too deep. I'm strong enough that I can handle this. I know my own limits. If you've seen the movie Pixar, or the movie Inside Out by Pixar, it has these little characters that are inside of a person influencing them. So you might think of it like that, but imagine there's this little lawyer inside of you called pride. And what pride does all day is he tells you lies that you're immune to warnings why you can handle things that other people can't, why things will turn out different for you, or why you're smarter and stronger than everyone else, why you don't need to heed warnings. This character, Pride, he's also our inner defense attorney. He defends all of our words and actions. He absolves us of our sin and our conscience. He shifts the blame onto others, and he excuses our sin. Well, the way we ignore warnings in our society often applies to the spiritual realm. But if we think about the fact that God never gives us a warning for no reason, it helps us pay attention to these warnings in Scripture. We'll take them to heart. 
Well, this morning in Mark 9, 42 to 50, Jesus warns us against the deceptive, destructive, and even damning nature of our sin. He tells us instead of keeping our sin around, instead of trying to domesticate our sin, we need to kill our sin. We need to get rid of it. So this morning's main point will be because sin is serious, it's time to get serious about fighting it. If you're willing and able, would you stand as I read Mark 49, 42 to 50. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, this morning I'm going to break the message into two parts. And the first part is the effect of sin on other people. I think the core of this passage is verses 43 to 48, which talks about how sin affects us. But at the beginning, verse 42 and 50, you see how our sin actually affects other people. So Jesus gives two warnings about how our, how our sin affects others. The first is he warns that our sin can cause others to sin or stumble. Let me read verse 42 again. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. While little ones can refer to children, most commentaries believe that this refers to those who have a young faith or an immature faith. And here, Jesus gives a very strong warning, likely for those who have greater influence in the church, who then lead others into sin or stumbling in their faith. Rather than receiving and serving and building up these new followers of Jesus, which is what we talked about last week in the call to servanthood, there are some who will use confuse, abuse, and even tear down the faith of these followers of Jesus. The most likely audience Jesus had in mind when he had this warning were false teachers. There were a lot of false teachers in this day who would lead a new convert astray, either away from sound doctrine or the true faith, or even through their blatant sin, they would destroy the faith of these new believers. And so this is a sobering reminder for those in leadership, but I also think it's a warning to all of us to not squelch the young faith in people, to not lead them into stumbling, to not crush their faith in Jesus because of our personal opinions, our divisive words, or harmful actions. So that's the first warning in verse 42. Then in verse 50, we have a second warning about losing our purpose due to sin. Jesus says about, talks here in verse 50 about salt losing its saltiness. I think the caution here is that when we live in sin, we actually lose our purpose. That as believers, we're called to be an ambassador of Jesus or a reflection of Jesus. 
And so even though we are imperfect and will continue to sin, when we do evidence the fruit of the Spirit, when we do love others well, we help them see a little bit of what Jesus is like. And in this way, we are lights in the darkness or we are salt in the world. And so Jesus' warning here is that if you are walking in unrepentant sin, or if your life is characterized by the world, then the world will not see Jesus in you. In that case, you're like a light that no longer shines. Or here, you're like salt that no longer preserves or adds flavor. And so in both verse 42 and verse 50, Jesus is warning us. Two warnings about how our sin affects other people. Now part two of the message, verses 43 43 to 48, this tells us about how destructive our sin is for ourselves. So he shifts away from how our sin affects other people and he leans into how our sin affects us. In verses 43 to 48, Jesus gives three if-then statements. In verse 43, and you can follow along, it says, if your hand causes you to sin, he says to cut it off. Then in verse 45, he says, if your foot causes you to sin, you cut that off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He says, it would be better for you to be crippled or blind than to keep your body intact but go to hell. Let me say first that Jesus here, I think, was speaking in hyperbole. I don't think he intends for them to actually mutilate their body or their flesh. Now, there was a a church father in the third century named Origen, and he was partly famous or infamous for allegedly taking this passage so literally that he castrated himself. That will not be an application this morning. Don't worry about that. Now, Origen, he not only took this passage too literally, but he then learned that sin isn't just what you do with your body, but sin actually originates in your heart and in your mind. So you could cut off your hands, your feet, you could even castrate yourself, but sin will still be there because sin comes from your heart and your head. And so here Jesus isn't saying to hack off a body part, but he is saying that fighting sin is so serious that we should be extreme with it or that there's nothing we shouldn't give up to give up our sin. And so I think Jesus is calling us here through this passage to see sin as so dangerous so destructive, so deadly that we then make war on our sin. I think part of why Jesus' words here are so strong, so sobering, is because the reality is we often don't take our sin seriously enough. Too often we're guilty of playing games with our sin. We excuse our sin by saying other people do worse things. We justify sin in our lives because we point to all the good things we do. Or we try to keep a sin around. We domesticate it by saying, I can still handle this. I can manage my sin. We might know a sin isn't good for us, but because it's not yet killing us, we play games with it until it blows up in our face. Now, if you've ever watched the show When Animal Attacks, or you've watched a documentary about people thinking they can be best friends with a wild animal, or you've even read news stories about people trying to take a selfie with a bison, you know this never ends well for people. Yes, wild animals act wild, and eventually people get attacked. And when humans don't take an animal's wildness seriously, they get attacked. Well, sin is the same. Eventually, your sin turns on you. Eventually, your small sins get bigger, and that sin that seems small now eventually blows up in your face. It turns on you. 
And so because Jesus, Jesus cares about us, he warns us this is not the right approach to sin. Sin never gets smaller, less painful, or easier to manage. Sin always gets bigger, darker, more out of control, and more enslaving. And so Jesus is calling us not to domesticate our sin, but to kill our sin. Not to delay dealing with our sin for another day, but to deal with sin today. Not to ask how close to the line can I get, but how far from the line can I stay away. And this isn't just the language of Mark 9. Listen to a few other examples from Paul in the New Testament. In Romans 8, he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or Colossians 3, he says, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or one more in Galatians 5, it says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its desires. Or as the Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now in the rest of our time together this morning, I want to walk through 10 aspects of how Christians can battle sin or things to keep in mind as we battle sin. I know you just heard me say 10 points. You're getting a little worried. I can see it. But don't worry. I cut out like five or six. And think about it. If each is five minutes long, that's only 50 more minutes. Just kidding. This list, it's not comprehensive either, but what I hope is that this gets us headed in the right direction. So before we start, I want you to take a minute and think about what's one area of temptation or sin in your life? So for you this morning, to make this practical, as we talk about these 10 steps, what is one temptation, one struggle, or one sin for you? I hope you have that in mind as we talk about these 10 things. So number one, Call a spade a spade or call a sin a sin. To kill our sin, it requires us to be honest about our sin, to see it as sin, and then to call it out as sin. This requires us, again, to stop minimizing our sins, to stop excusing our sin, which I think we do all the time. My wife will ask me, are you angry? And I say, no, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. And what I do there is instead of admitting I'm sinning in anger, I use a Christian euphemism and say, I'm just frustrated. Or we say hurtful things to one another and we say, ah, it wasn't that big of a deal. Or I'm just grumpy until I have my coffee. Or we struggle with the idol of control and then we say, that's just my personality. But what all of this covering of our sin does is it keeps us from seeing it as sin, which keeps us from confessing it to God as sin and seeking cleansing and freedom. So the first step in killing your sin is to see it as sin and to call it sin so you can confess it to God and turn from it. So that's number one. Number two, we then confess our sins to God. 1 John 1, 9 and 10 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So once we identify a sin as sin, we then confess that sin to God. And if something in your life, if it's just a personal weakness, if it's just a personality quirk or a struggle, then you might not need to take it to God. You can fix it on your own. You can change it on your own. But sin is different. 
Not only can I not pay for or create my own forgiveness of sin, I can't stop my sin. I can't free myself from sin. I need God's grace, not just for forgiveness from sin's penalty, but also for freedom from sin as a power. We are great at getting ourselves into sin, but terrible at getting ourselves out of sin. And that's where confession comes into play. When we confess our sins, we not only take it serious enough to ask God to cleanse us from it, to forgive us from it, but we also take our sins serious enough to say, I need your help to find freedom from it. So we sing about battling by getting on our knees, and that's what we do in confession. We ask for cleansing, but we also ask for the strength and the help and the freedom that we can't deliver on our own. That's number two. So number three, fight sin right away. Sin is like a weed. It starts small, but then it spreads rapidly. It chokes out everything good. Now hopefully, despite this morning, it will be spring soon, and you'll likely start to see a dandelion or two in your yard. Now how this starts is there are just a few dandelions like this, and you're like, oh, it's actually pretty. There's some yellow to mix in with the green. But then if you come back outside a few days later, it looks like this. It's like a sea of yellow in your yard. It's crazy how quickly a few dandelions can spread and take over your entire lawn. And that's just how sin is. I think every time you mow, you can be reminded that these dandelions are like sin, and they just spread and take over. But here's the problem. Most of our sin does start small, and so it's easy to overlook it, to neglect it, or to minimize it. But one of the keys to fighting sin, to getting it out of your life, is to fight it at first sight. As soon as you see it, take care of it. As you notice a little bit of anger in your words to other people. As you notice a little bit of jealousy sprouting in your heart. As you start to look with lust at one image or one person. As you let a little bit of fear or worry in the door, all of those things are only going to grow and increase. And the bigger and the deeper sin gets, the harder it is then to root it out. And so if you catch it early, if you fight sin before it spreads, you fight it before it has that foothold in your life. So the key here is not to wait, not to let sin linger, not to delay until it gets really big, but fight sin at first sight. Number four. See, these are going pretty quickly. Number four. Number four is starve your sin. So part of how we kill sin is not feeding it. Romans 13, 14 says this, make no provision for the flesh or for your sin to gratify its desires. Paul says, don't feed the flesh, don't keep temptation around, avoid the places, the times, the people, and the circumstances you know are likely going to get you into trouble. So that means if you know a certain group of friends are going to cause you to say things you shouldn't say or do things you shouldn't do, you avoid those friends. If you know getting on social media or scanning the internet leads to disappointment or loneliness or bitterness or jealousy, you might need to take a break from those things. If you know for you watching the news causes you to be either an angry person or a divisive person or just struggle with fear and worry about what's going to happen, you take a break from the news. You look and see what does it look like for my life, where am I tempted, and how do I starve it right away? If for you drunkenness is a temptation, you don't have a few drinks and hope you stop, you stop it right away, you don't have the first drink. Starve your sin rather than feeding your sin. 
Let me give a somewhat silly example of this, although this is partly confession, so hear me out. Let's say I'm wanting to eat healthier, but I really like crumble cookies, but I don't want to buy them or eat them because I know they're not good for me. And they're not. Just one of those, if you look at like the health nutritional facts, it's not good. I'll tell you that. So in this scenario, is it wise for me to go into the store and say, I'm not going to buy any. I just want to see what are the new cookies this week? Not wise. Is it wise for me to buy a few and say, these are just going to be for my kids. I'm not going to eat any. So even as they sit in the passenger seat, and I can smell them and all that butter and sugar is coming into my nose, can I avoid the temptation? Probably not. Is it wise for me to keep the app on my phone just to see what the new deals and discounts are? No. None of those are wise. They're how we feed the flesh, or in this case, feed the stomach. So the wise thing to do is obviously delete the app, to not go into the store. And yet, even though that seems silly, often that's not how we fight our sin. We don't delete the app. We don't delete the temptation. We keep it around. We let it linger. We feed it rather than getting rid of it as best we can. So the point here is if you want to fight your sin, what you have to do is starve your sin. Don't feed it. Don't keep it around, but starve it. Number five, fight sin at both the root level, but also the fruit level. Often we fight sin only at the level of behavior, our actions, or what is called the fruit level. But the problem is at our core, we are fallen and broken, which is why there is bad fruit we see. So this means we have to actually fight sin both on the outside in terms of action or fruit in our life, but we also have to fight sin in terms of the root, the thoughts and the desires and beliefs that are underneath our sin. If you have an apple tree at your house that is rotting, and so you see some rotten apples, you don't just take down the rotten apples and put good apples up. You have to actually deal with the rottenness. You have to nurture the tree to health. And so also, if you want to experience change in your life, if you want to really fight sin, yes, fight at the level of behavior and actions, but also deal with the root. Deal with the desires and the thoughts and the false beliefs that are underneath the sin. That means if you're struggling with lust this morning, and if your computer or your cell phone is one of the means of you sinning, then let, yes, you should fight it. You should get an accountability partner. You should get covenant eyes. You should take actions to fight the behavior, the fruit. But you can do all of those things and still not starve your sin because sin starts in the heart. So as you fight the behavior, you fight the fruit, you also have to address what are the thoughts and the desires underneath this. What am I wanting when I really choose this sin? So as you think about sin in your own life, you think about, okay, what are the behaviors to starve, to stop doing so I don't feed the flesh? But also, what are the roots I need to change? What are the wrong thoughts, the wrong desires, the wrong beliefs that I need to address as well? That leads to number six, put off and put on. So part of how you stop or part of how you fight the flesh is not only stop doing sinful things, thoughts, behaviors, but also start doing good and righteous things. Listen to Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. This is common language for Paul again. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And put on, so it's not one or the other, it's both. Put off and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul then continues in chapter four and he says, don't just stop lying, 
tell the truth. Don't just so stop saying hurtful, discouraging things. Start saying good, encouraging things to people. Don't just stop thinking about sinful things. Think about what is good and right and true and beautiful. And so for me, if my goal is with my kids in the morning to kind of fight the sin of impatience and anger, which to me is a lofty goal, part of what I have to do is think about what does it look like to put off the anger and impatience, but also what do I need to put on? Maybe for me that's putting on patience, kindness, giving them grace and love. Maybe it's putting off the desire to not be annoyed or constantly demanded, and it's putting on just a heart or a mindset of a servant. Instead of saying, how can they make my day easier, I have the mindset of how can I make their day better. And so we put off thoughts and desires, but we put on thoughts and desires as well. So when you fight sin, don't just think in terms of how you stop it. Think in terms of what's the something better that I need to replace it with. Put off and put on. Number seven, and this is less something to do and just something to remember. And the goal here, the goal is not perfection. The goal is progress. So I want to be clear. I've talked a lot about how to fight sin this morning, the importance of it, the danger of our sin. So I want to be clear to not say that you will get rid of all sin in your life. Now, there might be some sins that God will give you complete freedom from. But there might be other sins and temptations that are going to nag you your whole life. And we know from scripture that sin will remain in us until we are glorified, until Christ returns and we are made right from the inside out. But until then, we live in this tension, the tension of not settling for our sin, not being okay with our sin, while also not being crushed by guilt when we do sin. We seek the Spirit's help to fight sin and to mature in holiness, but we do so, do so remembering that progress, not perfection, is the goal. And so this morning, don't sin so that grace may abound, but also don't refuse grace by saying that sin won't stick around. Maturity is not about huge leaps and bounds. It's about little baby steps. It's about progress, not perfection. And then number eight, and these last three are gonna move us a little bit away from just the focus on sin to setting our eyes on Jesus. Number eight is fight sin through delight in Jesus. So fight through delight. What we see in the New Testament is that desires aren't the problem. So the answer to fighting sin isn't just to stop desiring everything, to crush desire, to not have desire. We are creatures of desire. God gave us desires for a reason. The problem is we desire the wrong things, or we desire the right things, but for the wrong reasons, in the wrong ways, or in the wrong propor proportion. And so while desire isn't the problem, our desires do need redirected, redirected away from what is sinful to what is good. And ultimately, I think the thing our hearts desire most is what is most beautiful, most glorious, most joy-giving. Our hearts desire the things that will give us peace and satisfaction. And that thing is ultimately God. In other words, I want you to hear this morning, we not only fight sin, but we must delight in Christ. You can have all the strategies, goals, and right intentions, but unless your soul is fat, satisfied in Jesus, you'll continue to sin. Listen so to this quote from Thomas Chalmers. He was a Puritan. He said this, the best way to overcome the world or your sin is not with morality or self-discipline, 
Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. So this morning, here again, the greatest antidote to fight your sin and temptation, it's not a strategy, it's a savior. It's worship that finds pleasure and peace by knowing, enjoying, and resting in God. Because when our hearts are caught up in something that is wonderful and good, we don't go looking for lesser things. No one stands at the Grand Canyon and starts thinking about porn because their heart is caught up with a wonderful thing. You don't go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and think about the Big Mac at McDonald's. When your heart is set on something good and glorious, it doesn't go looking for lesser things. And so also when our hearts and our minds are feasting on Jesus, we won't go looking for lesser substitutes and snacks. And so part of how you fight sin, and maybe the most important part of your fight against sin, is actually delighting in Jesus. So make war on your flesh, but also cultivate desire and worship of Jesus. Number nine, when you fight sin, fight from a position of acceptance by God, not as a payment for acceptance from God. Some people hear this need to change, this need to fight sin, and they think that means it's up to them. It's up to them to clean themselves up, to turn their life around, to get really serious about changing who they are, and that will make God happy with them. But all of this, this kind of I will change myself thinking, this is works-based, self-empowered attempts at change rather than gospel-driven change. Real change in the Bible flows out of the gospel, meaning that when I rest in God's grace, when I rest in Christ's finished work for me on my behalf, I know that I'm already forgiven, accepted, and loved. I then don't do good works to be saved. I do good works because I am saved. I don't need to earn God's favor for me because Jesus has already earned God's favor for me. So now I can move forward and I can fight sin out of the freedom of knowing when I do stumble or I do sin, this doesn't doom me. It doesn't separate me from God's love because it's grace and grace alone that cover me. And I think this grace of God under the Christian, it's not an excuse to keep sinning, but it is a net that catches us when we fall. When we fail, when we fall, rather than smashing against the ground in shame, being crushed by what we've done, being defeated, the gospel net comes in and it catches us and it carries us back to the cross and reminds us that's where your standing is, that's how you're forgiven, accepted, and loved. And for me, this is honestly why I find the Christian life so freeing and the gospel such good news. Through the gospel, I have good reason to fight my sin. I also have power from God to fight my sin, but even when I fail, I still have forgiveness of my sin. God's love for me, God's commitment to me, they are never in question because it's not about what I've done, it's about what Jesus has done for me. And this allows me then to fight sin from a place of freedom and grace rather than fear and guilt. And that makes all the difference when you're fighting against sin. And this leads to our last point, number 10. Know both the toughness and the tenderness of Jesus towards sinners. Part of what we see about Jesus, and we've even seen this in our study of Mark, is that when he approaches sinners, he can be both firm and gentle. To those who take their sin casually, to those who lack conviction of sin, Jesus is firm to them. 
And so if you're here this morning and you're playing games with sin, if you're walking in unrepentant sin and hidden sin, then Jesus has a strong warning for you this morning. He tells you that you're standing on a frozen lake, but the ice is thin and it's cracking. He gives this warning for your good to call you to repentance, to call you back to himself. And so the message for you is to stop playing with sin and start fighting your sin. But I also want to remind us this morning that this is not the only thing Jesus says about sin. And it's not the only way Jesus relates to sinners. For those who are humbled by their sin, broken by their sin, we see that Jesus is full of gentleness, grace, kindness, and love. If you are in Christ, meaning that you've trusted in Jesus, you've believed in him, and brokenness over sin is a good indication that you are are in him, Jesus assures you that you are forgiven, that his love is set upon you. And I think this is important to talk about this morning because while some of you have that defense attorney I talked about in the beginning, that defense attorney in you that excuses all of your wrongdoing, that justifies why you do what you do, that excuses your sin, I know there are other people in here that are the exact opposite. Rather than having a defense attorney, you have a prosecuting attorney in you. And anytime you make a mistake, anytime you sin, you are flooded with accusations of guilt and shame. You're told that you're a failure, told that God doesn't love you, told that you should just give up, told that you cannot be a Christian that God is disappointed with you. When you hear warnings like what I've shared today about these warnings of sin, you not only take it to heart, but you can hear it as a crushing verdict of condemnation. So for those of you, if that sounds like you, if you have that prosecuting attorney in you, you take your sin serious, which can be good, but you also must take the gospel or Christ's work serious too. You can get so stuck on your sin and what you've done that you believe that God can't love you, that God can't use you, that God can't forgive you. And so what happens is your sin, your sin looms big and the cross looms small. And what we need to do is we need to fix that by realizing, yes, yes, our sin is big, but the cross is much bigger. So don't find rest in what you've done. Find rest in what Jesus has done for you. Don't listen to the voice of an accuser. Listen to the voice of your advocate, Jesus. And this is a reminder that a Christian isn't someone who believed the gospel once in the past and then we sort of move past the gospel. But Christians must rehearse and rest in the gospel every single day. Because we daily sin, we need the gospel daily. And getting serious about our sin means getting serious about Jesus and the gospel. Because you can only find freedom from your sin when you are resting in him. Yes, our sin is is great, but Christ's grace is greater. Yes, our sin is powerful, but it's no match for the power of the blood. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And what we look to is Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate hope, not our victories or our failures, not how little we've grown or how far we've grown, not our defeats or successes. Jesus alone is our living hope. So we look to him, We look to Jesus to find the strength we need, the forgiveness we need, the joy and the grace we need. So the message this morning, it's yes, fight your sin, but fight your sin while also resting in Jesus and delighting in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know any time we talk about sin, 
It can be a sobering conversation. And yet it is so kind and good of you to bring our sin into the light. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would bring bring conviction. Lord, each of us are still sinners. We need our sin exposed so that we can bring it to you, so we can bring it to the cross and be reminded that there is cleansing, there is forgiveness, and there is freedom. So Lord, I pray this morning if there is someone in here, if there are many people in here who are walking in unrepentant sin, who are trying to hide their sin, that you would bring conviction and that your spirit would set them free. And God, I pray for all of us that as we battle sin, we would do so by enjoying and resting in Jesus. So Lord, even now as we sing to you, pray that we would delight in you, that we would see you as our living hope and as the antidote to our sin. Pray this in his name, amen.